0: The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. Mark chapter eight. You're going to need your Bible today. Mark chapter eight should be some Bibles under your chairs. If you don't have one, you can follow along on your smartphone uh, or, or however you want to figure it out. Figure it out. All right. Mark chapter eight. We're going to be there. Um, And so at this point in the gospel, in Mark chapter eight, Jesus has turned his focus towards Jerusalem, and there's no turning back. He's making his journey towards Jerusalem. He's he knows what's coming. Right. He knows that when he gets there, he knows that uh, by the end of that week, he will be betrayed. Uh, he will be put on trial. He'll be abused. Uh, he will be beaten, right? Mocked, spit on. He will be crucified. And then three days later, he will rise. And so he's, he's headed that way, okay? And so up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus hasn't plainly told his disciples this is going to happen. And yet now, this is the time. He makes it very clear three times in the Gospel of Mark leading up to his entry into Jerusalem. We're going to look at those today. Go ahead and look Look at these predictions with me. Look in chapter 8, verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Look at chapter 9. Flip to chapter 9. Look at verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. Flip to chapter 10, let's look at his third prediction in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise flip back to chapter eight so we see there chapter eight verse 32 and he said this Plainly, This wasn't a parable, this wasn't a metaphor, an analogy, or hyperbole. Jesus plainly told them the truth. And I want to start out our time today looking at and pointing out three things in these prediction uh, passages that we just read, because I think these three things are going to serve our joy as we look towards Easter. The first thing I want you to see there, the first thing in your notes, the Son of Man must suffer, die, and rise again. That's in chapter eight, verse 31, we find it there. And he began to teach him that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We need him to take our place. We need him to take the wrath of God on himself for our sins. We need him to reconcile us to the father because we can't do it. Our best of righting our wrong isn't good enough. Look at this scripture scripture in Isaiah 64 6 all of us become like one who's unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags all of our righteous acts all of our attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our our sins sweep us away our righteousness isn't good enough. We need him to rescue us. We all fall short of his perfect uh, perfection. We all fall short of his perfect standard, right? And that's why in Romans 5, 6 it says this, When we were utterly helpless, what an incredible definition, right? What a great description. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Jesus didn't come to supplement our goodness. He didn't come to to kind of help us take it to the next level as we work uh, and find our salvation. He didn't come as just a a guide or or some sort of a teacher that would say, do this and do that and you're going to get there. There, right, he didn't do that. Instead, he came as our rescuer. Why? Because we were utterly helpless. Our best is filthy rags. We need him. We can't fix the sin problem we've got. We can't. We can't bridge the gap between a perfect God and sinful man. We needed a rescuer. It. It made me think about uh, being a father just the other night. Uh, we were, uh, I guess that was Friday night, uh, I got a call from Angela. I was up here for a youth event. I got a call from Angela, and she said that Piper Grace, our daughter, was trying to get out of the bathtub, and she, she took a step towards my wife, and when she did, she stepped on a toy, and then just nailed her chin on the, uh, on the bathtub, and it, it opened up pretty good. She ended up having to have stitches. Now, my daughter, her response to it happening, she was going to fix it, right? Something broke, she'll fix it. So here's what she said. This was her diagnosis my two-year-old she'll be three this week which is crazy but this is this is her diagnosis this is how she's going to fix it I need a passy and I need a Band-Aid, right, and you just imagine somebody like, you know, like a triage doctor, I need a passy, I need a Band-Aid, and that's what she said, she said, I need a passy, I need a Band-Aid, and that's what she wanted, and so uh, Angela gave her whatever she wanted, I remember she, Angela called me, and she's like, yeah, I don't know, I mean, she wants a passy. should I give it to her, I'm like, you give her whatever, if she asks for a fifth of scotch, you give it to her, all right, like, she is hurt, she's bleeding, you give her whatever she needs. So she gives her the passy, right? And, and so she thinks, like she's fine. Like Piper Grace is fine. She calms down and it's all right. But you know what? Is she fine? Did it fix it? No, it didn't fix it. We had to take her to the doctor and she had to have stitches put in, right? It wasn't enough. In the same way with ourselves, our righteous acts to atone for our sin are a band-aid on a wound that we can't fix. They're a band-aid on a relationship that we can't mend. It's not enough we need Jesus. Don't miss that. There's great joy to be had in recognizing our helplessness and his strength and sovereignty, because as we recognize our helplessness and his strength and his sovereignty, we, we recognize a great depth of love for us, that he would look at us in our helpless estate, and he wouldn't write us off, although we would be so tempted to do that. We do that so often to our brothers and sisters, but he wouldn't do that. He sees Jesus in our helplessness and he comes to our rescue. The first thing I want you to see is that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be resurrected. The second thing I want you to see, Jesus walked ahead of them. Jesus walked ahead of them. Look in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. So at this point, this is the third act here this is the 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 third prediction Jesus is on the home stretch he knows he's like it's next time it's 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 uh Jerusalem right like I'm I'm headed there I'm leaving Jericho and then I'm going to Jerusalem there's no turning back I'm on the home stretch I'm headed to my betrayal my death uh my crucifixion and my resurrection and and he's walking ahead of them he's this indicates that not only of course teachers would walk ahead of those following them but 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 why is this significant here because because he's leading them right he's not slowing them down he's determined to head towards his sacrifice for us and that's his destination his betrayal and his death are waiting for him then his resurrection are waiting for him and he is going there's nothing turning him aside in fact in Luke 9:53, it puts it this way that he his face is set I love that picture his face is set towards Jesus Jerusalem. There's no turning aside. Had you ever driven to an appointment you didn't want to go to? right? Isn't it the only time that you obey all traffic laws? You know what I mean? You do not exceed the speed limit, and when you get to that four-way stop, you just let everybody go. You're like, oh, I'm, you're good. No, you go. We got we got it at the same time. You go. You are the most generous merger on the interstate, right? Just, no, come on. Come on in. Are you going to slow down? That's fine. Come on in, right? And like, you, you're just looking. Your face isn't set. You're looking for an excuse to turn around, right? Oh, my check engine light came on, although it stays on every day of your life. It on my car might explode today I better go home right like your face isn't set but Jesus's face is set he's walking ahead of them he's not letting anything get in his way from his destination from his sacrifice for us nothing is pulling him away why is that like to to have something so gruesome and so difficult ahead of him why is his face set. And you might say, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe he Maybe he didn't know, or, or he didn't think about, or focus on what all it would entail. You say, sure, he's talked about his death, he's talked about his resurrection, fine. But maybe he hasn't thought about really how difficult it's going to be. He hasn't thought about the whips on his back. He hasn't thought about the beard being pulled out of his face. He hasn't thought about the the prison. He hasn't thought about the rejection. He's he's not focusing on that. Maybe he's just he's just looking at the prize. All right, the prize. I'm looking at that glorification. I'm looking forward to my resurrection. I'm. Looking at my my sons and my daughters being redeemed. So, so I'm just looking at that. Maybe he's not thinking about how difficult it's going to be. But look there in verse 34. What's in his prediction that isn't in his previous two? And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He knew. And he thought about what was ahead of him, and yet he willingly and resolutely walked with his face set towards his abuse and his betrayal and his death and his resurrection for us. He was no victim. He was no victim. He wasn't tricked into this. He wasn't suckered into it. He wasn't a patsy, right? He was no victim. He walked ahead of them. John 10, 18. Jesus said, no one takes it. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus never turned away from the guilt and the, and the shame and the, the suffering and the abuse and the death that he would endure for us. And he was no victim. He did this willingly for us. And what was the response of the disciples here in chapter 10? Look at verse 32. And they were amazed they had heard the predictions before. Did they fully understand it? I don't think so. But they heard the predictions before. They knew that it was going to be dangerous. They knew that this was going to be difficult for Jesus. Whatever it held, right? Whatever their idea was of what was ahead of them in Jerusalem, and they really didn't know. Whatever it was, they knew it was going to be dangerous. They knew it was going to be difficult. And to see his determination to head that way anyway, to not let anything get in between him and what was waiting for him in Jerusalem, they were Amazed. So here's the the thing we have to think about. We aren't like the disciples. We have the word of God. We know what he was facing. I know that he was walking towards his betrayal. I know he was walking towards his abuse. I know he was walking towards a mockery of a trial and a crucifixion where he would hang on a tree and the wrath of God for my sin and your sin was poured out onto him and he would suffer and die. I know that's what he's walking towards. So at the very least, what what should be our response to this reality at the very least our response should be amazement and awe and worship. We should be amazed. We should be amazed and awe that the King of Heaven, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amazing. That's amazing. That should leave us in awe as we think about his sacrifice. For us, the third thing I want you to see about these prediction uh, passages, and I would say maybe most important, after three days he rose. All three predictions end with the best part. Eight thirty-one. After three days, rise again. 931, after three days, he will rise. 1034, after three days, he will rise. He is alive and that's nothing to skip over and I know we sing about it and we talk about it and maybe you've just got come to, to, to accept that reality and, but, but that's nothing to skip over. He is alive. Without his resurrection, the early church doesn't happen. The movement of faith following Christ doesn't happen. Happened, the, there's no revolution of faith there there's no good news there's no forgiveness for us there's no reconciliation between us and the father there's no joy there's no heaven there's only separation paul writes in 1 corinthians he says if there's no resurrection then those who have died before us have perished and 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 we who are living now who are who are living with that hope we should be pitied above all people because we truly have No hope, but listen to what Peter says in Acts 2, 24. Listen, church, here we go. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Just listen to that, and just just drink that in with me. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold. Hold on him. What do you think the enemy wanted that day, that Friday? He wanted Jesus to die, and he did. What do you think he wanted on that Sunday? He wanted that tomb closed. Death did did everything it could to hold on to him. Because if he holds on, if death holds on, if the enemy holds on, and Jesus isn't resurrected, we're done. We are done. God's plan of redemptive, in redemptive history that started in Genesis, it's over. It's failed. It's done. We have no hope. We aren't reconciled to the Father. The glory of Christ has been tarnished. It's over. And so he holds on and holds on, but it's impossible for death to keep hold of Jesus, and so God raises him from the dead, and so now because of that, he is alive, and he's reigning, and he's ruling, and he's interceding for us, and he's securing our salvation, and he's he's supporting us, and he's loving us, and there's no condemnation for us, there's no accusation that can stand against us, he is alive, there's nothing to fear anymore, he is alive. And because he's alive, we're alive. As death can't hold him, death can't hold us. Because of his resurrection, it changes everything. He is alive. At this point, it would be appropriate for us to just stop. We could just stop right here. I know some of you are like, thank God, he shut up so quick. No. We could just stop right here. It's enough for us to just stop and to worship when we come face to face with our helplessness. That's enough to look at how God came for us in our helplessness. That's enough. We could could stop as we've come face to face with with Jesus' choice to suffer for us, to know that he was no victim, but he willingly left heaven and came here, took, took the form of a man and suffered and died for us. That's enough. It's enough for us to stop and reflect on his resurrection power. It's enough. But as we look at these three predictions, there's two things that accompany each one of them. Each time Jesus gives a prediction, his disciples misunderstand him. There's some sort of misunderstanding on the part of the disciples. And then Jesus corrects them. And he instructs them on how his followers are to live this new life he's given us. So here's the pattern, the pattern that we see. We have a prediction in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, then we have a misunderstanding by his disciples. And then we have an instruction of the Lord Jesus. And you know, if, when you look at the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, it, it seems that oftentimes the disciples have misunderstandings. It seems often that we come face to face with the disciples' misunderstandings. And, and even their their ignorance, right? It's, it's right there in front of us and, and we hit it all the times. And, and aren't you glad That no one's following you around chronicling your misunderstandings and your ignorance, right? Aren't you glad that no one's writing it down and that millions of people will read it for the next thousands of years, right? Aren't you happy about that, right? Because the reality is, like, just like the disciples, we are always learning and we're always uh, learning new things. And because of that, like sometimes it's just really embarrassing our misunderstandings and our ignorance are right there on the surface and you you can't escape it 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 makes me think about anybody in here not so great with technology right technology not so good okay like you're like I'm good with light bulbs I'm good with that I got the switch and I know they work I'm fine with that but but maybe that's not your strongest suit I I uh uh I had a, a family member. I'm not going to say their name. No, it's not my father or my mother, although that would be great. But I had a family member who uh, they got a Kindle for for one Christmas. And if you don't know what a Kindle is, it's a an e-reader, right? So it's like it's like books are in this little machine, and it's just it's just magic. And so anyway, uh, they got this, and they weren't so great with technology, so they were like, Grant uh could you I don't even know how to turn it on can you teach me how to turn it on right so they're under their misunderstandings right there on the surface and so if I were loving and kind and patient and and nice I would um I would just tell them like we'll just press the power button however uh what I told them was I said oh these new kindles are voice activated they're not and uh so I told I just said say kindle on and she said kindle on she said, no, nothing's happening. I was like, hold it closer to your face. She said, Kendall on. I said, you gotta say it, re- I'm sorry, the first time it's gotta get calibrated your voice, you gotta say it real loud. Kendall on. And I was like, maybe it doesn't, I, I don't know, maybe it doesn't really understand. Are you uh, are you saying it with any accent? Try to say it as clear as possible. Kendall on, right? And this, so, so then finally I was like, do you know what? You need to tell it this. Kendall, I don't understand technology and I should never trust Grant again, right? And then they finally caught on with it, but... You know, there are times in all of our lives, because we're constantly learning, there are things we don't know, that our misunderstanding, our ignorance is right there on display, right? And we need, and, and, and we need that. We need to learn. And I'm so thankful that, that no one's writing mine down. Please don't be writing them down, all right? And, and so, uh, but the disciples, that's not the case. Right here, with each prediction, we have a misunderstanding of theirs right there clearly on display. And then we have this instruction of the Lord Jesus. Why? Why do we have that here? Why are they connected? Why do we have Jesus making a prediction about his death and his resurrection, and then right after that, connected right there with it, is the disciples' misunderstanding, and Jesus giving them instructions on this is how you live this new life I'm giving you. Why are they tied together? And here's why. Because his death and his resurrection don't just have eternal implications, but also have daily implications. Implications. His death and resurrection don't just affect our future, but affect our present. Does that make sense? His death and resurrection don't just have eternal implications, future implications, but they have present implications, daily implications. Because we aren't becoming citizens of heaven because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm a citizen of heaven now. We aren't becoming children of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are children of God. Now, so my day-to-day life is to be lived out as a citizen of heaven. Not a future citizen, a citizen of heaven. My day-to-day life is to be lived out as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus. Because 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus has bought not just my tomorrow, but has bought my today. Does that make sense? My new life doesn't just start in eternity after I die. My new life starts now. This, this, His death and his resurrection, it, it's changing my attitudes and my heart and my behavior and my words and my mind right now now today Jesus this new life he's offering you it's not reserved for the future it's right now so in each chapter we have Jesus saying you know what I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you new by my passion, my death, and my resurrection. I'm gonna sacrifice myself for you. And then we have the disciples, and and they're they're saying something. They they're revealing some worldly thinking or or some worldly motivations. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. Don't think that way anymore. That's that thinking doesn't work anymore. Right? Live this way. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the children of God. This is the way of joy. This is the new life I'm giving you right now, through my death and resurrection. This is how you are to live. So, for the, the rest of our time together and, and next week, we're going to look at some these misunderstandings of the disciples and the instructions that, that followed uh, uh, Jesus' predictions. And specifically, we're going to try to pull out three things Jesus teaches us about how a follower of Jesus lives this new life he's given us right now. Let's look at um, the, the first one this week, and then next week we'll get the last two. The first one in, in Mark 8. Let's look at Mark 8. And the first thing I want you to see, A follower of Jesus loses everything. Look in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is his prediction. And here comes the misunderstanding of the disciples. Look in in verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter pulls Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, yeah, can I get you for just one second? No, no, what, no, what you said, no, what you said is not okay. It's not going to happen. No, I'm not going to let anything happen to you, all right? I will hack off anybody's ears who get near you, all right? If you don't get that, just ask somebody next to you. Why is that funny? Anyway, like, I will, I'll do whatever I've got to to protect you. no. You're not dying. This isn't happening. You're not going to be betrayed. You're not going to be turned over. You're not going to die. And why? Because he's thinking, if you die, I lose, right? I lose everything. I lose my movement. I lose my dream for this kingdom that I wanted you to build. I'm going to lose my place of honor. I'm going to lose my comfort. I'm going to lose my plans for the future, and I don't want that. I lose what I want, and that's not going to happen, Jesus, But Jesus rebukes him and really all of the disciples when he he says this in, in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So Jesus makes it clear that Peter's focus is not the focus of a Jesus follower. He makes it clear that his thinking doesn't line up with this new way of thinking with this new life that Jesus has for him. And Jesus then gives us this instruction and he gives a new way to live as Jesus followers look in verse 34 and calling the crowd to him with his disciples he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it so Jesus says take up your cross daily and lose your life That's what he's saying to us. Take up your cross daily and lose your life. That means that followers of Jesus have to be willing to lose everything for Jesus. We have to be willing to lose our dreams, our ambitions, our comfort, our plans for the future, our attitudes, our relationships, our control. Everything, what we want dies and is replaced by what Jesus wants. And Peter's desperately trying to save the life that that he has control over. This is my plans, this is what I want, and no, Jesus, I'm gonna hold on to this, nothing's gonna change, I'm in control here. And Jesus says, to find real life, Peter, to find the life that I want to give you, you have to lose the life you know. And follow me. You have to lose everything that you've planned. You have to put that aside and say okay Jesus whatever you've got for me. And Paul puts it a different way. In Romans 12.1 he says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. You are a living sacrifice sacrifice. That means that with every attitude, we make a sacrifice to God through our submission. I submit my attitudes to you. I'll sacrifice my attitudes. Even when when they don't honor you, I'll change them. I'll put them aside. I'll reject them, right? I want to honor you. With every action, we make a sacrifice to God through our submission. This action, everything that I do, is to make you happy, and I'll sacrifice my freedom to do what I want to make you happy. If my freedom doesn't line up with what you want, it doesn't line up with obedience to what you're telling me to do, I will put that aside. I will kill that freedom for you. With every relationship we make a sacrifice to God. We're a living sacrifice by our submission. I'll make the choices to honor you in this relationship. I'll sacrifice the choices that might momentarily make me happy if they don't make you happy. With every word we make a sacrifice to God through submission. I'll speak words that please you and not me. I'll not speak the words. I'll sacrifice those words that in the moment feel really good and fly very easily out of my mouth. But I recognize they don't make you happy and I don't live for me anymore. So I'm going to reject that. I'm going to put that down. I'm going to lay it down in front of you and kill it. In in, in in exchange for words that would please you with every single aspect of our lives, we are living sacrifices, meaning we are to put everything aside to please the Lord. To lose control and to submit everything to God is the worship that He requires of us. And it's the worship He deserves. It's, it, we, we know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up everything for us. He deserves what back from us? Everything everything but where's the problem we're control freaks right we are we are we are all control freaks you go right to the beginning go back to Genesis the the very first rebellion of Adam and Eve what's the issue oh yeah God says do it this way we're gonna do it this way right we're, I'm gonna do it my way it's that control freak thing right and I think like we all out we all are control freaks I don't care who you are uh, uh who your mama is whatever you are a control freak there's something in your life that you've got control over and I think like when I first got married I, I I realized the the things that she was like this is how I want this thing to be and 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 the things that I was really particular about I remember uh early on we were just done laundry, and so we are like, putting clothes away, and she had, like, this, just this row of, like, socks, and she's, like, putting them away, and I was, like, what is that about, and she said, well, this pair is uh, for Monday, this pair is for Tuesday, this pair is for Wednesday, right, and I was, like, wow, that's, that's a thing, and so, like, I picked up a pair of my socks, and I was, like, this pair is for January, and this pair is for February, right, and, like, there are just certain things, there are certain things that we are control freaks about, right? Like that's, we are the, 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 the masters of our own destiny. We like to think that, right? But Jesus says, hey, control freaks, I love you and I have a better life for you, but it's going to cost you. This path to life is going to cost you. You've got to give it up. You've got to give up your control and let me have it. How do we do that? How, what do we need to be able to lose everything? What do we need to, to not separate things away from the authority of Jesus, to, to release our control of things in our lives? What do we need? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13, 44 that I think is really helpful. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What causes that man to give up everything? Joyfully, by the way, give up everything. What causes it? He's found something of more value. So what do we need to give up our control? What do we need to die to lose everything? What do we need? We have to see him. We have to see Jesus as worth more. We have to see Him as more valuable than all these other things that we have in our grasp. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7-8, through 8, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You have to value the Lord Jesus more than whatever that thing is in your life that you're in control of. You have to value knowing Jesus as more valuable than your money. You have to see knowing Jesus as more valuable than your friendships. You have to see knowing Jesus as more valuable than your control, than than your plans, your comfort, the praise from your coworkers, your your health, whatever it is. You have to see following Jesus as more valuable valuable. How do we begin to do that? How do we begin? We begin this way. Look and listen. Number one, look at the sun. Look directly at Jesus in the Word of God. Look at what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never Be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus will satisfy whenever someone comes up to me and maybe they're interested in Jesus or they they don't know if they want to be a Christian, but they want to find out more about Jesus, I don't recommend them to a book or a, a pastor or a sermon or whatever. I just say, read the Gospels. Go look him right in the face. Go look at the things that he said, the things that he did. Go look at how merciful and gracious and kind and wise and wonderful he is. Look directly at the Son and he will capture your affection. And that advice doesn't just go to new believers or see, Seekers. that advice goes to us brothers and sisters we need to continually taste and see that he is good i recently had a brother come to me and say you know i'm, I'm not happy i don't i don't feel god close to me I I care more about these things than I do about him I'm just being honest and I said well are you in the word of God and he said well no I just kind of don't read it anymore and I said well look directly at the Son." Jesus said come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest he doesn't say come to a book about me or a radio station dedicated to me you come to me you meet me and I will give you rest rest so look at the son let him capture your affection the second thing listen to the son be obedient to Jesus and you will be satisfied John 15 Jesus says this if you keep my commandments you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full so we see a couple things verse 10, to abide, to rest in, to remain in, to live in the love of Jesus, that comes from obedience. My peace and my satisfaction are two of the first things stolen away in disobedience. Don't you have the same experience? The second thing we see is verse 11, his commandments are what? For our joy. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. The more obedient you are, the more satisfied in him you will be. There's joy waiting for for you in obedience. Some of us have settled for lesser happiness and, and greed or pride or selfishness because we haven't been obedient and drunk deep from the joy, the wells of joy that God has for us, waiting for us in obedience. So look at the Son, look directly at Him in the Word of God and then listen, be obedient. So as we close, I guess I want to ask this, what does the Lord want you to to do today is there an area of your life that that you are just you are a control freak and there's an area of your life that that you're trying to save that you haven't lost yet you haven't said okay God whatever you want to do with this part of my life you do it why is that is it because are, are you not looking at him are you not listening to him are you not being obedient to him Is an area of control that that's a threat to your affection for Jesus. Is there a way to give it up? Is there a way to completely let go of that? How can you lose more to gain everything? Because the stakes are high. Jesus said in Mark eight thirty-five 35-36, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? A follower of Jesus loses everything everything I'm going to ask the band to come back up we're going to uh, have a time of response and song and uh, believers in this room I imagine the Lord's spoken to you Uh, our dad usually does that when we get together and when we open his word so I imagine he has some sort of response for you and I don't know what that is Maybe your response needs to be just standing and just singing as loud as you can, maybe closing your eyes, raising your hands, maybe even kneeling or even laying down on the floor in front of the Lord. I don't know what He wants you to do. Maybe you need to come forward and pray with us, or you need to come forward and make these steps an altar. I don't know. But you respond however He's calling you to respond. I imagine there are also in a room this size, people in this room who... um, have been in control their whole lives. They've never surrendered control to Jesus. Sure, they know about him. Sure, they might even have read their Bible. They might even have read about him. Sure, maybe they've talked about him. They listen to sermons. They've, maybe they've given money. Maybe they go to Sunday school, whatever. But you've never given him control. Jesus says, if you keep that control, if you don't surrender to me, if you try to save your life, You're going to lose it. The only way to save it is to let it go. Is to lose it. Is to surrender to the Lord Jesus. I wonder if there are people in this room that need to do that this morning. Who need to surrender to him today. To say you know what? I'm no longer in control. I'm really a follower of Jesus now. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's in control. I'm following him. If that's you this morning, then I'm going to encourage you to do a couple of things. One, would everybody just bow their head and close their eyes? If that's you this morning, if you need to surrender to control, tell the Lord right now. I don't mean out loud. I don't mean you have to stand up or anything like that. You can do it in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Just say that to him right now. Lord, I, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to be in control anymore. I'm following you. Forgive me for living my life my own way. Forgive me. For all of the wrong I've done, forgive me and take control. I'm yours. I'm yours. The word says that if if you did that this morning, if you expressed that to the Lord in some way, in your own words or if you just repeated my words, whatever. If that's the attitude of your heart, if that's really what you mean, the word says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You're forgiven and you've been made new. Now you are a Christ follower. Now you really are a Christian. Not just in name, but you really are a child of God. Now and forever. And so I'm going to ask you, if that was you, if you prayed that prayer, if you had that, you expressed that to the Lord, you surrendered to Him this morning. I'm going to ask you in a moment when we stand and sing, you step out and come. I'll be down front, Brother John will be down front, a couple other elders will be down front. You come to us and you come tell us. In the passage we read this morning, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in front of this sinful and adulterous world, I'll be ashamed of you in front of the Father in the presence of the holy angels. Meaning, if you really want to follow Jesus, you've got to let it all go. All go. So, if that's you this morning, then you come forward. Let us rejoice with you. Let us us tell you what's next. Let us us get you set up to, to be baptized, to follow Jesus in that act that he's given us. So, you come. Lord Jesus, we're about to stand and sing. I have no idea what you've been doing in this room today. I have no idea what you're about to do. But thank you for doing it. Thank you for caring for us and working and moving. Give us the courage to respond how we need to respond. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.